And so let's turn now to Philippians chapter 4 and prepare ourselves to feast richly upon the only word that counts, which is the word of God. And I'm going to open us in prayer, and I'm going to be praying a prayer from John Calvin, which uh, touches on some of the themes that I'll be touching on in the sermon today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hear our prayer. Lord, we are not our own. Therefore, neither our reason or our will should guide us in our thoughts and actions, but only your will and word, illumined by your Spirit. Lord, we are not our own. Therefore, help us to not seek what is self-serving to the flesh. Lord, we are not our own. Therefore, let us forget ourselves and our own interests as far as possible. Lord, we are yours alone. To your glory alone, let us live and die. Lord, we are yours alone. Therefore, let your wisdom and will dominate all our actions. Lord, we are yours alone. Therefore, let every part of our existence be directed towards you and your glory, our one true and ultimate end. And this we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. So this morning, on the third Sunday in Advent, the lectionary draws our attention to verses 4 through 9 of the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And since this is also Gaudet Sunday, where the church focuses on the joy we have at both the reality of Christ's first coming or Advent, but also the joy that is ours in the face of all of life's trials and tribulations because of the surety we have of his second coming in glory to gather us as one family home to our Father, we will be looking specifically at verse 4 and Paul's call to us to rejoice in the Lord always. But since we are parachuting into the text at the end of Paul's letter, we do need a little context. Paul is, I believe, writing from his final imprisonment in Rome to the church at Philippi, which was one of the first churches established in Europe and which was planted and much loved by Paul. And despite his own imprisonment and difficulties, Paul is writing affectionately to thank the Philippians for their friendship and concern for him by sending Epaphroditus to him while he is imprisoned. He desires to encourage the Philippians as his partners in the proclamation of the gospel, a partnership which over time has become a partnership in suffering because of the persecution they are both enduring for the faith. And it goes without question that Paul was a prisoner at the time he wrote this letter. He says so himself in verses 7, 13, and 14 of chapter 1. The location and stage of his ministry, early, middle, or late, at the time of the writing of this apostle, it is debated among scholars. 
However, and the reason why I think it's at his, the end of his life and his, one of his last letters, is that there is a distinct sense of impending danger throughout the letter. Paul seems to be in the process of a trial, and he speaks as if expecting a final judgment, a judgment which could very likely be his death. He takes great pains to communicate that whatever fate befalls him, it is ultimately for the advancement and the glory of the gospel of Christ. And time, therefore, seems to be growing short for Paul to communicate to his beloved Philippian congregation his pastoral last instructions and wisdom that will prepare them in the days, weeks, months, and years ahead to stand firm together, united in Christ in the face of persecution from without by the world and from division and discord sown by Satan and fed by their own sinful inclinations from within. In this final chapter of this letter, Paul is challenging the Philippian Christians and us on how we are to think and live in light of all that he has written up to this point and the attitude we must maintain as we pass through all of the troubles, trials, and tribulations that we shall experience as we journey as pilgrims or foreign citizens through this hostile world to our true home and heavenly country. We must not take Paul's final words in this chapter lightly. He speaks with not only the authority of an apostle, but as a brother in Christ, who speaks with the experience of one who has gone before us on the same pilgrimage that you and I are being called to make. And he has arrived at the end of his earthly journey in a prison cell, awaiting the same fate as his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not trying to be morbid, but I am trying to soberly convey to you the ominous gravity of the circumstances in which Paul finds himself and out of which he speaks the words which we are going to focus on today. I am ordained and serve in the North American mission of the Anglican Church of Nigeria. I know I look very Nigerian. <laughs> and as all Anglicans know, our brothers and sisters in Nigeria have suffered terribly in recent years at the hands of Islam. The bishop who preached at my ordination, Benjamin Kwashi, nearly lost his own wife in one attack and has seen many of his own friends and parishioners killed because of their faith. The news in the last few years has been filled with stories of Nigerian Christians and other Christians both in Africa and in the Middle East being executed for refusing to convert to Islam, just as we are beginning to hear of the same thing happening in Afghanistan since the U.S. pullout earlier this year. 
In China, the communist government has begun a renewed campaign of persecution against Christian churches. And across our country and throughout the West, we are seeing the growing hostility and intolerance of the secular left towards Christians. And unless you've been living under a rock these past few years, you cannot have failed to see the rising tensions and radical divisions that are threatening to tear our country apart and undermine the civil rights and legal protections which have up until now allowed Christians to exercise our faith and values in relative peace and security. It is no longer that far-fetched to be worried and concerned that those days of peace and security that our parents enjoyed, which our pilgrim forefathers came to this land seeking, are now over. So how does Paul speak to the Philippians from prison under the threat of torture and imminent death? What does he wish to communicate to them from a place of earthly uncertainty and anxiety? How does he exhort them knowing their fears for him, the grief they will experience when he is executed, and their own fears for their families of what lies ahead for them in the midst of an increasingly intolerant and hostile pagan society. He tells them to rejoice. Open your Bibles and look at our verse today, Philippians 4. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Is he kidding? What is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about joy or rejoicing in the same way we tend to think and speak of it. It's a warm and fuzzy emotional experience, something that is used to sell toys and gifts at this time of year. As we just discussed, Paul is not on vacation sipping margaritas on a beach somewhere at Club Med. Nor is he writing to the Philippians, who are under increasing threat of persecution, to just buck up and put on a happy face. And there is nothing, nothing in the Bible that suggests that the Holy Spirit is merely communicating to dying Nigerians, imprisoned Chinese, and Western Christians in collapsing democracies that they just need to do a little more positive confessing and think happy thoughts. That is not what is going on here. If you look back to verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, Paul has just rebuked two women whose conflict is threatening the body of Christ at Philippi with dissension and division. He reminded them and us that we are no longer our own, as we just prayed. And since our names are written in the book of life, we belong to Christ and are therefore being conformed into his image. And that image is the image of the suffering servant of Gethsemane. 
who came to serve and to lay down his life for us, that we would learn to do the same by submitting to one another and to do the will of God our Father expressed in his holy word so that we would be one with him and one with another. This is the mindset that should govern our attitude towards one another. But now Paul is drawing our attention to the overarching mindset which should govern and control our attitude in response to what we experience in our daily lives. And that mindset which we are to have is the mind of Christ. Paul just explained that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The mind of Christ was exemplified not by pride, selfish ambition, or fickle emotions, but rather by humility, selflessness, and trusting obedience to the will of God the Father. When Christ was brought out of the wilderness in Matthew 4 to be tempted by Satan, the devil used exhaustion, hunger, uncomfortable circumstances, concern for self-preservation, and greed for wealth and power to tempt Jesus away from his obedient trust in God. But Christ's mindset and his attitude was not grounded in his present earthly circumstances. Instead, it was firmly guided by the surety of the promises of God found in his word, the words of which Christ used to respond to the devil. Satan used earthly circumstances, namely what Christ had, fear and hunger, and what Christ lacked, comfort and security or power and wealth, to tempt Christ. But Christ's identity, his contentment and joy, were not grounded upon circumstances which can change, but rather upon the one whose word and love does not change, namely God. This is one of the great truths of the gospel and what the first advent of Christ assures us of. God's unchanging faithfulness and love towards us in Christ revealed to us in his word. And it is in these verities of the Lord God that Paul commands the Philippians and all future believers to find and ground or anchor their joy. Your joy is not to be found in your circumstances, be they good or bad, but in God alone, in whom you are to always rejoice. How do I know this? Paul himself. What did he say? In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, did he not say, Brothers, join in imitating me 
and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And what kind of example do we have in Paul? Well, ask yourself, how many times had Paul been imprisoned, facing persecution and possible death? Numerous times. Let's examine the specific example Paul gave the Philippians when he was imprisoned in Philippi. In Acts chapter 16, if you remember this story, Paul and Silas are beaten in Philippi and thrown into prison after casting an evil spirit out of the slave girl. Now, this is not just a case of being knocked to the ground. They were brutally attacked by a crowd. Then their clothes were torn by the magistrates. And then they were beaten again with rods, which most likely in those days would have broken bones and cracked ribs. They were then thrown into prison with their feet placed in stocks. Without a doubt, they were probably in great pain, needing medical attention, and come morning could have faced the very real possibility of being executed. Let's look now at how Paul and Silas reacted to this. If you have your Bibles open, turn with me to Acts 16, where I'll begin reading in verse 23. Again, Acts 16, verse 23. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, he saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them in the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Paul and Silas met their circumstances by encouraging one another with prayer and the singing of hymns. And when, they pre when presented with the opportunity to escape for their lives, they instead turned and met their jailer and shared the gospel with him. Their confidence was grounded in the unchanging word of God and not their changing circumstances. And we may find this hard to believe or even do when we ourselves are confronted with trials and overwhelmingly hard circumstances. For the unbelieving man lost in sin, the mind is dominated by our feelings and emotions. One can only rejoice and find contentment when they feel good in our society. But here in Philippians 4.4, Paul is telling us to rejoice always. In other words, to rejoice no matter what we feel. 
because of what has been revealed to us in Christ. For the Christian who has been united through faith with Christ, the scriptures reveal to us the divine design that we were created capable of thinking, willing, and feeling, and all three were meant to be formed and shaped or governed by God's revelation, his word. We can simplify this by saying, we were created to think God's thoughts after him. And as we grow in conformity with Christ, and we come to learn in the school of Christ, that the more we lean upon God's understanding and not our own, that our emotions and feelings and desires grow to be guided and shaped by the unchanging word of God and not by our changing and passing circumstances. This is the fundamental reason why Thomas Cranmer designed our liturgy, our patterns of worship, to soak us in the word of God so that by our repeated reading, confessing, singing, and praying of the inspired scriptures, our hearts and minds would be shaped like Christ's to respond to what we experience and endure in this world with God's thoughts and words and not our own. And this is why Paul can write in Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 21 from prison, even while facing imminent death, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The joy of the salvation and the love Paul has in Christ far exceeds the worst that the world and Satan can throw at him. This life is passing, and death no longer has a hold on Paul. When he closes his eyes to death in this world, he will open them to behold Christ in glory and eternal rest in the arms of God. Now, I want to pause here for a moment to clarify something. Paul is not preaching fatalism or a stiff upper lip. Nor is he telling us to become wishy-washy pacifists. We do not engage in contending for what is right, good, and just in the world. That would turn Christianity into a kind of Hinduism, which tolerates evil as a kind of balance to the good. And we often see this when Christians ask each other, well, what would you do if the government decided to persecute Christians? And the unthinking answer that you often hear rattled off is, oh, well, I guess I'll just confess Christ and die. It's not what Paul taught, nor what Christians have done throughout history. If you read on in Acts 16, you'll see that in the morning, Paul uses the laws of Rome 
and his own Roman citizenship to hold the magistrates accountable for breaking the law and mistreating them. It is important to note that throughout history, Christians have acted wisely to protect and preserve their witness and their faith, even in the face of the worst circumstances. For example, in both the early church and in China today, Christians have created underground communities to escape persecution while continuing to spread the gospel. Rejoicing in the Lord always is not a denial that our earthly circumstances can be terrible and trying, nor is it suggesting that we sit back and let terrible things happen. But it is a realization that what does happen on this earth is not the end. It is a profession of trust in the sovereignty of God that we can draw strength from in a desperate hour when we are tempted to despair and give up all hope. Lancelot Ridley, who was chosen by Thomas Cranmer to become one of the original six preachers of Canterbury, during the English Reformation, wrote, the apostle exhorts us to rejoice in the Lord and not in any other things of this world, not in honors, riches, friends, kindred, gold, silver, lands, possessions, or in wisdom or in prudence of the flesh or in strength of the body. Therefore, he who will rejoice, let him rejoice in God, who is the author of all goodness, deliverer of all evils and adversities. Therefore, says the, apostles in, the apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he who will rejoice, let him rejoice in God, and so shall his joy be full, sure, constant, permanent, and perfect. Paul, in his last days, is exhorting the Philippians and you and I to take our eyes off the present, but temporary circumstances, and find our joy in the gift of Christ which is permanent and unchanging. Listen to Paul from his letter to Romans, chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It is in Christ alone, alone, that we can find the joy that passes all understanding in the midst of all trials. And it is in Christ's own words that gives us that assurance. Listen to Christ from John chapter 15. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you.
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Amen. I'd like to close in prayer now. And there can be no more perfect prayers than those that are drawn from the Word of God. So I'll be praying from Ephesians chapter 3, verses starting in verse 16. May God grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.